Hello, my name is Carmen Solis, and this is the Bolivian Revolution at 70, a docu-series that are brought to you by the Southeastern Council of Latin American Studies. To understand the effects of the Bolivian Revolution on the healthcare sector, I spoke with historian Nicole Pacino. She's an associate professor at the University of Alabama at Huntsville. Nicole has studied the effects of the Bolivian Revolution policies in the countryside, in particular on women and indigenous groups. Hi, Nicole. Thank you for coming to the program. Hi, Carmen. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I want to ask you, how does your work contribute to the understanding of the Bolivian Revolution? What are the main contributions of your work? So I thought I would I'd answer that question by talking a little bit about how the project kind of came to and evolved over time, and then get at what I think are the main contributions of my work. So it initially started as a project on state formation inspired very much uh, by the book Everyday Forms of State Formation, which is you know, a staple in our field and I know has been very influential in your work too. And what I really loved about that approach was the idea that the state you know, isn't just an always existing, existing entity, but rather something that had to be created, something that had to be formed, and that it was a process, and then that process was um, participated in by both those kind of at the top, like in the state sector, and those kind of at the bottom, so those more popular groups. So my basic approach, and I think this has been, you know, one of the longer uh, contributions of my work, has been that looking at public health approaches, programs, expansion, can help us really track the expansion and consolidation of the Bolivian state after the revolution, particularly in the countryside. And we can track this expansion and consolidation by looking at physical infrastructure, um, health programs, expansion of health programs, training programs to increase the number of personnel that actually administered health programs and those sorts of things. As the, pro as the project has evolved, I started to think about the state in a couple of different ways, um, borrowing primarily from literature um, that is known you know, more or less as the kind of anthropology of the state. And so what does that mean and how does that change? Or thinking about what a state is. And so there are two key ideas I've been playing with in more recent years. And one of them is the idea of quote unquote, off-centering the state. And for those that wanna follow up on this, this is from an edited volume called State Theory and Indian Politics that was published in 2015. And what um, the authors here ask us to do is to think about the state not as the unquestionable core of political life, but rather one of a set of actors that are creating you know, political climates and political cultures in the Andes. Two, to think about lived experiences of the state. So really think about how the state manifests itself in the daily lives of people and how they react to it. And then three, not to think about the state as just a central bureaucracy whose tentacles kind of reach into everything, but rather um, an entity that looks different in different places. So the question is really, how do we actually think about the geography of the state or the mapping of the state? And so it calls into question this idea that there's a hegemonic entity to begin with. Another idea I really liked um, is this idea of pro prosaic geographies of stateness, which was an idea that Joe Painter wrote about. And to translate that into ordinary English, he basically says, we wanna think about the permeation of stateness into the everyday 
or the barely noticeable daily interactions individuals have with state actors and institutions that contribute to the state's legitimacy. So as the project has evolved, I've really started thinking more about public health as a factor in either contributing to or undermining state legitimacy. So people can see how the state reacts in moments of kind of public health crisis, and then either say, they did a good job, they took care of us, you know, they tried to address the problem, or these were incredible failings of the state. And we can, of course, extrapolate all kinds of things uh, from that with the most recent pandemic, uh, both in Bolivia and beyond. So my, my main contribution here is I think that public health as a form of state building really helps, invites us to think about the many mundane practices through which the state inserts itself into people's lives and how this contributes to or undermines state legitimacy. So for example, after the 1952 revolution, um, state actors attempted to consolidate their power and authority in rural areas where state influence had long been far from ubiquitous, right? And to put this in public health terms, in the 1950s, only one doctor existed for every 3,500 Bolivians. And wow. most of them, yeah, it's a pretty shocking number actually. Um, and most of them were located in, earl, in urban areas. So what this really means is of course, um, most Bolivians had very little or virtually no access to any kind of medical um, practitioner. By the 1960s, what we see is an unprecedented expansion of rural health service, which led to increasing interactions between state actors and rural res residents. So my research has really traced the story of how the state has become a constant presence in rural Bolivians' lives by looking at the gro growing number of health attendants, vaccinators, nutritionists, maternal and infant health specialists that intervened in rural communities' affairs. So before 1950, these interactions were fairly rare or uncommon, and after 1952, they became increasingly routine. This doesn't mean that state programs were universally um, popular or accepted in rural areas. Instead, uh, what my research shows is that some communities readily embraced them or even demanded them. Others sought medical care through local healing networks and others actually contested state programs. So again, this gets to the idea of the fact that, that the healthcare state or the healthcare sector was far from ubiquitous and far from being seen as like a, a completely legitimate entity in the eyes of rural people. So this shows kind of the uneven growth and the contested nature of state authority. And I think sheds a little bit more light on what Crabtree and Whitehead had called like the Swiss cheese state or that idea of, of a state that again, isn't kind of ubiquitous um, universally across all sectors. That's kind of the, the top down nature of what I think my, my contributions are to understanding public health and, and state authority, legitimacy and state building. The second component has really been like, how did public health act as a language for negotiation um, of ordinary people with the state? So the question there was really, how do people interact with and utilize state discourses for their own purposes? And my argument has largely been that early on in the MNR's tenure, rural communities could identify a very particular language with which they could request or demand services from the state. And they would call on these things that the MNR was trying to create, like political authority, legitimacy, popularity, and these sorts of things to make demands for things they wanted for themselves. Um, and I think that's kind of where the, the primary source I shared with you com comes in, if you want me to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. So you'll I, on the website, I understand you'll be able to see uh, this source in its original Spanish with a translation, correct? Um, but this is a letter 
that was sent to um, the central government and the Ministry of Public Health from a community located in the Yungas, which is just a little bit north um, of La Paz. And it was sent in January of 1954, and the community's name is Glenai. And I won't read the whole thing, but the part that really stood out to me when I read it, let me find it, was the use of uh, revolutionary rhetoric from a community that described itself as isolated. It used that terminology in particular. In their petition to the government, they called their, ch their children victims of tropical infections like hookworm. They claimed their population had perished due to the lack of medical attention, and those are direct quotes from the source. They requested specifically that a medical professional be sent to the community uh, with medicines for the region. And most importantly, they noted that they supported the president, Victor Pazes Tensoro at this time, and were quote unquote, ready to defend the national revolution with the sacrifice of their own lives if necessary. But those, that was very strong and very intentional language, right? So what really struck me about this source was this community was in its own words, dying from a lack of medical care, but also willing to die for the revolution. So people who were willing to put their disease-stricken bodies on the line to defend revolution, how could they not be worthy of government assistance, right? So this nationalistic language demonstrated supposedly isolated communities' astute knowledge of national politics and ability to manipulate state rhetoric to draw attention to local needs. Government officials frequently identified these types of communities as the biggest obstacles to progress, Yet these communities were re-articulating revolutionary rhetoric in a way that demonstrated their political sophistication. And when they inferred that they had not yet benefited from state assistance, they really were drawing on MNR promises to help all Bolivians, to improve all Bolivians' quality of life. And so I think even two years into the revolution, so this is January 1954, rural communities so, could so clearly identify a language with which to package their um, requests for state attention and medical assistance. They employed the idea of political loyalty in order to request health assistance and medication for their community. And to me, that shows that the two were, were inextricable, like they were closely linked. So I think from thinking about it from more state formation from a popular perspective or a bottom-up perspective, clearly public health was desirable for some, right? And then became a kind of bargaining tool or a negotiating tool to access things that they had long wanted. I have a follow-up question, which is overall, how would you evaluate the policies of the revolution on women and indigenous groups. And I know that you're saying, and, and it's, that's absolutely right, that we cannot talk about the impact of the revolution as it will be like something homogeneous and it happened everywhere. But do you think it, if the revolution changed the, the lives or it had an impact, particularly in, those, in these two groups on, on women and indigenous groups? I do. And I think, you know, specifically because of the attention to expanding rural health care, um, to moving it out of the cities is automatically going to expand access for indigenous communities. And that's not to like conflate rural with indigenous because of course that's problematic, but we know that at this time, the vast majority of indigenous people were living in the countryside. So that in and of itself, I think is one way in which we see um, the revolution's impact on indigenous communities beyond things like mining nationalization and beyond agrarian reform. In terms of women, I see particularly, um, a I mean, one of the key focuses of the MR public health programs was advancing maternal and infant health. 
this wasn't necessarily a new thing. Of course, Anzulowski wrote about you know, similar attempts to expand these policies in the 1900s and 1950s, or 1950 era. But it becomes, I think, even more purposeful and even more concerted. And what I've seen in my research is between about 1952 and 1956, and then even beyond, was an intentional effort to build rural and infant, maternal and infant health clinics in, if not totally rural areas, at least like provincial capitals, if that makes sense. So it's it's automatically kind of expanding access or potential access to people beyond major urban centers. So women's health care, maternal health care was very much a focus of the MNR state. And specifically, um, the goal was to really to, um, to augment the population. There was a lot of hand-wringing about Bolivia's quote-unquote lack of human capital, that this was going to be the source of, of wealth for building the country of the future and fulfilling the promises of the revolution. And of course, they recognized that you couldn't have healthy children without healthy families and without you know, healthy people to give birth to these children. So that really became a focal point. You see too a lot of emphasis on disease control and disease eradication in the countryside. And of course, this is accompanied by all sorts of racist language about how indigenous peoples tend to be, you know, carriers of disease and all of these sorts of things. But it's also accompanied by a very interesting language about economic growth and economic potential that you can't make the lowlands, for instance, economically productive or part of this kind of national revolutionary project if people are suffering from things like hookwork and hookworm, malaria, and yellow fever. So those things become conflated in a kind of national discourse that public health is ultimately about economic growth and then about incorporating indigenous peoples into the nation, about modernizing them, sanitizing them. And so I, it's hard to act for me to actually disentangle the kind of political and economic goals of the revolution from public health. To me, they are all woven together really inextricably. Wonderful. So how does your work help us to rethink previous narratives of the Bolivian revolution? I, I think for one, well, I'm going to say something that I think is maybe not that shocking, but maybe it is. So who knows? I mean, it, it shows us that public health is, is revolutionary. And I think a lot of times well, how do I want to see this? I think obviously the literature on, on public health and medicine in Latin America has been making, you know, for decades now a case about seeing public health programs as kind of fundamental to political and economic nation building and state building. But here we really see an example of how central it is to a kind of revolutionary narrative of transformation and an attempt for, you know, a, a revolutionary coalition to establish um, a legitimate government. And so I think that's part of it. And for a long time, writing about the Bolivian Revolution just really focused on the, the key political and economic reforms, so the big three, right? Nationalization of the tin mining industry, the 1953 agrarian reform program, and then the extension of universal suffrage to all Bolivians. And I think when we look at public health as part of this revolutionary process, we, we move beyond just thinking about a revolution as political change, as about advancing rights, as about you know, fostering economic transformations, but that revolutions were also shockingly intimate in a way that we can see through public health programs. How do revolutionary policies really, inter, it really impact individuals and their, their bodies, right? So what 
does it mean when state agents care if you wash your hands, brush your teeth, whether or not you breastfeed children or use formula instead? You know, are these state concerns or are these concerns of individuals that represent the state? So I think it kind of boils down a revolutionary process to a more intimate level. And as I was hinting at before, I think it really, it moves us beyond um, the spectacular aspects of state building and into the mundane, which to me is really interesting. And public health, of course, has spectacular elements too, right? We talk about epidemics, we talk about mass uh, vaccination campaigns, we talk about massive disease control programs, but, you know, the mundane comes in these kind of like, you know, how do we teach families to wash their hands? Well, you know, you build a school system where you teach children and children go home and teach parents. You create a cadre of state agents that actually go door to door. And, and you know, that could be welcomed or that could be seen as an intrusion, you know, and, and all, you know, all aspects in between. So I think the, the big components here and the way I think it, my research helps us think more about the revolution is what are the mundane aspects of revolutionary policies and state formation? And then how do we think about revolutions having as having really like intimate impacts on people and their bodies? I'm thinking a little bit on the work of Herbert Klein, who I think that it was published pretty sure in 2002, in which he's focusing on the question of education. And he argues that in the end, whether there was a revolution or not, the tendencies will have been the same because that, those tendencies in access of, to education were happening in, in Latin America anyways. So he kind of contrasts back a little bit this argument that it was the revolution that allowed those changes. By looking at the question of health, how would you think about that question? I, I would say yes and, or I don't like yes and no, maybe, because I do think, you know, again, if we look at public health, we're seeing broader trends across Latin America in terms of trying to, in the 1950s and 1960s, augment maternal infant health, focus on disease control and eradication. So we're seeing those trends. What I think is, is new or interesting to me about what happens in Bolivia after 1952 was the MNR leaders like explicitly tied these things to the revolutionary agenda. So it's not just oh, we're doing these things because this is, you know, this is what's happening. This is what's um, popular. I mean, these are kind of the trends going across the region, but couching it specifically in the kind of language of revolutionary transformation and revolutionary nationalism, I think makes it distinct because it's tied to a very specific kind of polit political project. Um, and I think, again, gets back to state legitimacy. So if you know, if the MNR government is making all sorts of promises about transforming people's access um, to healthcare, to education, about improving people's lives, whether or not they deliver or not, then becomes tied to the success or failure of the revolutionary experiment itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's, it really becomes, I think, an exercise in fostering or undermining state legitimacy because it becomes so inextricable from the language of revolutionary nationalism. I see. So does that mean that the national budget for healthcare grew after the revolution? Yes and no. Um, okay. <laughs> so as, as I, one of the things I've written about is how dependent in many ways the MNR health program was on U.S. assistance because, mm -hmm. you know, 
revolutions disrupt economic systems and you know, Bolivia is no exception in that case. And of course, as we know, mining nationalization, agrarian reform and all these other things like pretty radically disrupted the Bolivian economy and um, you know, high inflation and all of these sorts of things were really hit the country very hard and mm. were hard for people to deal with. So when you have really ambitious programs in public health, like what the MNR had, one of the ways they, they did the things they did is they appealed to US government cooperative programs. And there were many of these under the State Department from the 1940s to the 1960s for funding for these kinds of programs. So it, it creates a kind of interesting dependency on US funding and US personnel for operating these sorts of things. On the other hand, the MNR does a really good job at, I think, manipulating the US government in a kind of Cold War world in which they, again, they, they use public health as a kind of negotiating tool to say, well, if we can't provide these services, if we can't improve people's lives, obviously, you know, the communists are going to gain ground here. And, you know, we're going to, Bolivia is going to become a communist nation. They're going to overthrow us and these sorts of things. And so in the early 1950s, the United States is giving more aid to Bolivia than any other country in the world, which is shocking, actually. Yeah. And I think that in large part, this is due to the astute political maneuvers of MNR leaders like Victor Paz Estensoro and Hernán Silesfaso and, um, and Victor Andrade in particular. And just to go back to your initial point, when you talk about MNR negotiating tools, it reminds me what the people in Guanay when these tiny communities were doing, like talking about public health as a negotiating tool, and the MNR is doing the same with, with the U.S., which I think is really interesting. It's being politicized on every level, essentially. So, and this is my, my last question. What are the legacies of the revolution? Is it worth thinking in the revolution today, 70 years after the Bolivian revolution? Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. <laughs> um, I, I think I wanted to say first that it's, it's always surprised me how little attention the Bolivian revolution gets in comparison to other major Latin American revolutions. I mean, of course, Mexico, uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, I think have, have been more prominent in discussions. And I think part of that might be how relatively short-lived the Bolivian revolution was. I mean, the MNR was in power for only 12 years. I remember Andrew Lasky once said to me, but those were a really important 12 years. And I said, I agree. But you know, it's nothing in comparison to like Mexico where you have the pre who's able to like, to utilize the language of the revolution for, for what, 75 or 80 years. Mm -hmm. And in Cuba where the Castros were in power for 60 years. Um, and I think in Nicaragua specifically because of the time in which it happened and the Reagan administration's staunch anti-communism and scandals like Iran-Contra like kind of played a more dominant role in the uh, U.S. imagination. But nevertheless, I think the Bolivian Revolution has a lot of legacies that are useful for us, not just in terms of thinking about Bolivia, but thinking about um, political systems in general. So I think in, in Bolivia in particular, I think the revolution created new expectations and ideas about what the state owed its citizens um, in terms of, again, like if I just use healthcare as an example, this is really a moment in which I think the idea that healthcare became a right becomes enshrined in the national discourse. And in fact, it, it was actually put into the 1961 constitution as the first time that healthcare was a right that should be granted to all citizens. So that really cements a particular relationship between citizen and state that I think hadn't quite been there before, at least not in such concrete terms. And I think even when you 
when you look at the kind of the dictatorships that followed the downfall of the MNR, the transition back to democracy, the kind of neoliberal era, um, the gas wars and the water wars of the early 2000s, and then the Evo Morales uh, presidency, you, you see that a lot of that understanding about what a state owes its citizens, I think, can be traced back to the MNR in political terms, economic terms, and definitely in public health terms. So I think every government since 1952 has in some way had to grapple with an increasingly, how do I want to say this, like conscious and politicized citizenry. So I think that's a really important legacy. I want to say a couple other other things about that. Like I think the Bolivian Revolution too helps us think about how fragile democracies really are and how hard it is to foster a democracy in an era of, of tremendous political upheaval. So ostensibly 1952 was supposed to be like the ushering in of a new Bolivian state, right? This was gonna be universal suffrage, it's gonna be a popular democracy. I mean, these were going to be things that were cemented in. But of course, as we know from all of the great research that has come out on the Bolivian revolution is that there was a fine line between 1952 and 1964, between democratic politics and authoritarianism. And that line became increasingly blurred and, and increasingly slippery over time uh, during their tenure. And I think that's another trend that has continued in Bolivian politics uh, since 1952. That, you know, I mean, we can look at Evo Morales as a really good example. I mean, ushered in as kind of the first indigenous president in Bolivia, and he's going to represent all of us and look at all of these great things he's going to do and, and was supported by a vast coalition of environmentalists, students, activists, uh, coleros, indigenous peoples, you know, and the longer and longer he stayed in office, we start to see that kind of slippage between democracy and, and, and authoritarianism and ultimately a lot of those people who supported him you know, withdrew their support in the long run and, and, and even called for him to resign and helped participate in his ouster. So I think another legacy or another lesson we might learn from this is that, you know, leaders shouldn't take their supporters for granted. And the MNR made that mistake <laughs> between 1952 and 1964. And, you know, I think Evo Morales made that mistake uh, too much more recently. So I think a lot of the politics of the revolutionary era have haunted um, <laughs> all Bolivian politics since that since that time period. Thank you so much for coming to the program. This was fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me.